Welcome to the Journal.ie's The Explainer, where every week we take a deep dive into a different news story. I'm Michelle Hennessy, and this week, what does the election result mean for the future of Northern Ireland? In a historic election result, Sinn Féin has overtaken the Democratic Unionist Party, becoming the largest party in Stormont. It should mean that the party's Vice President Michelle O'Neill also makes history as the first nationalist First Minister. But yet again, there's a stalemate at Stormont. The DUP, now the second largest party in the Northern Irish Parliament, is insisting it will not form an executive until issues with post-Brexit border checks on goods are resolved. So what will the results mean for Sinn Féin and the DUP, and for the direction of Northern Ireland's future in general? I'm joined by Press Association reporter, formerly of this parish, Dominic McGrath. Dominic, thanks for joining me. Good to have you back. Thanks for having me. I think it's fair to say, Dominic, that last week was a pretty full-on week of reporting for yourself, covering the lead-up to and then the election itself and then the aftermath. You might first talk us through the results of the election. Can you tell us in a nutshell what they were? It might be hard to say it in a nutshell, but I'll run through some of the headline figures and we'll see where we go from there. So, as we all know, at this stage, you know, Sinn Féin emerged as the largest party in the Assembly. A historic moment in the history of Northern Ireland post Good Friday Agreement, but probably in the history of Northern Ireland as a state in its 101-year history. Um, so Sinn Féin got 27 seats and around 250,000 votes. And the DUP got 25 seats, doing actually much better than a lot of polls suggested it would, but still not doing particularly well, having a bad election. But the other major success, of course, was Alliance, which reached 17 seats, a jump of nine, which is a remarkable um, success. And of course, the other major theme of the election was the collapse, really, in the vote for smaller parties. So the SDLP had a terrible election. It lost four seats. The Ulster Unionist Party failed to um, hit back and um, compete strongly with the DUP. And of course, the Green Party representation in Stormont was completely wiped out. So it was a day of success for Sinn Féin, a middling result for the DUP that was not as bad as expected, and then just smaller parties really suffering, with the alliance, of course, then being the, the major success. So why was this election and the results so significant? And is it actually as significant as people are making it out to be? I think it is. I think there was a bit of backlash over the whole idea of it being a seismic election. And I think part of that comes through the fact that, one, it was a very dull campaign. All the parties really played it safe in the weeks leading up to the poll on May the 5th. And as well, I think part of that is that so much of the events and the discussions that defined or overshadowed um, the election actually happened months before. You know, we had the DUP, of course, pulling out of the executive, leaving governance in Northern Ireland paralysed for many months with ministers in place, but with a limited ability to actually make decisions. We saw the a DUP again pulling out of um, North-South Ministerial Council, and of course, the Northern Ireland Protocol and the wrangling between um, the UK and the EU with, of course, input from Dublin and demands from the DUP and unionists and loyalists in Northern Ireland. Again, kind of all forming a, a sort of bubble around the election that we're now seeing kind of um, really just ballooning um, in the days after. And it seems like there's more drama, I think, in these recent days. But it's more the drama we all anticipated and we all expected. You know, for instance, Jeffrey Donaldson was very clear that he would not go back into Stormont. This is what's happening. We don't even know at this stage um, whether Jeffrey Donaldson will even appoint a speaker to allow the Assembly to function. So 
I think in that regard, a lot of the history was anticipated. You know, most people thought that Sinn Féin would win the election. In fact, Sinn Féin did better, I think, than many people were anticipating. Um, there were certain seats, perhaps Foyle, um, North Belfast, where there were concerns where the Sinn Féin could actually keep seats. They kept them and they even were in contention to actually get extra seats as well. Their vote did remain quite steady. So it's seismic, but in quite a an expected way. And I think the fact that Sinn Féin didn't sweep towards victory in the way it did in the election in the Republic, where it just came out of not nowhere, but it just um, swept Fianna Fáil and Fine Gael aside. It didn't really do that in this election. It really won through really clever vote management and the expense of a flagging DUP. So how much then can we glean from the result in terms of what Northern Irish politics actually looks like now? What did the election tell us? What did we learn? It's difficult. Um, I think we're still in the process of trying to to work through the results and what we discovered. We probably discovered really that Sinn Féin is now the dominant party of nationalism. The SDLP's really, really poor result. We saw it lose four seats and lose, you know, really big name figures like Nicola Mallon, but also, of course, Pat Catney and Dolores Kelly, shows that really, you know, Sinn Féin has cemented itself. Um, it did really well in a constituency like Foyle, where it replaced the two um, sitting MLAs, uh, Martina Anderson, of course, being one, with two quite inexperienced, perhaps not very well known um, MLAs, and it still was able to do really well, easily. Um, outpolled the SDLP, which shows, I think, the dominance of Sinn Féin. But it also, of course, shows the ongoing decline of the unionist parties and the DUP, while not doing, as I say, as bad as many feared within the DUP, it still did not do particularly well. And really, in most constituencies, it votes um, declined. But of course, the major story and the thing that is, I suppose, probably most discussion about the future of Northern Ireland is that alliance success. Um, it got an increase of 4.5% in first preference votes, but that doesn't really tell the story of how, leaving aside the seats where it won, the vote was going up even in kind of less fertile alliance soil um, to the west of North Ireland, places like Middlestir and West Rome, where candidates weren't really in with a shout, but the vote went up. And it was alliance, I think there was a surge, a tsunami, a wave. All these terms really do, I get, get a sense that, you know, in Stormont now, there are three parties um, that are in control, the Sinn Féin, the DUP and Alliance, which of course leapfrogged a number of other parties to again become a party that really will be wielding significant power um, up at Stormont, which is a major change for Alliance. And can you tell us a bit more about Alliance, who they are and, you know, why did they do so well? So Alliance has been having this, you know, incremental growth for a number of years. And Alliance as a party is, of course, neutral on the constitutional future of Northern Ireland. It finds neither as unionist or nationalist. And of course, in the Northern Ireland Assembly, that designation is quite crucial in a number of cross-community votes that are a crucial part of how the um, Northern Ireland institutions were set up after the Good Friday Agreement. So Alliance is not part of that kind of orange and green politics, it would say. I would say it's benefiting from a growing number of people. They would say perhaps younger people, a newer generation who don't define themselves as nationalist or unionists, but perhaps just want the best for the future of Northern Ireland. Um, Naomi Long is the leader. 
And of course, many would say she's very charismatic, a very effective political communicator, justice minister, quite an effective minister who had a number of sort of legislative achievements to her name. And traditionally, Alliance would have been seen as um, perhaps a middle-class, well-intentioned party based in and around Belfast, but one that never really had any hope of competing with um, Sinn Féin, the DUP, but even really traditionally with the Ulster Unionist Party or with the SDLP. But actually, in recent years, that's completely changed. Um, it sees itself as quite a progressive party, and actually in its manifesto, it was suggesting some quite radical changes to how Stormont has run, again, reflecting the fact that Stormont and Northern Ireland, perhaps in general, isn't broken down to this these kind of binary nationalist or unionist categories anymore. And again, I mentioned the Alliance support traditionally in Belfast, in the east of Northern Ireland. And we saw this election, and we've seen in recent years, is that trickle of Alliance support moving from those traditional areas to places like Middlestir or West Tyrone and growing in those less fertile areas to suggest that Alliance support really is growing and it's doing much better and is now a major force um, in Northern Ireland politics and may indeed, if the energy is there, lead to a to a reform perhaps of the institutions to reflect again the fact that that nationalist uh, unionist system perhaps is looking is looking outdated. It's interesting that that neutrality is a real appeal for voters who chose Alliance. Did we see more of that in a general sense in the election that people were maybe leaning away from, you know, the, the nationalist unionist slant of parties and more so voting on policies that the parties are putting forward. Is that sort of line irrelevant now? It, it, it's hard to say irrelevant. I think it's more um, that Alliance has become probably the most transfer friendly party in Northern Ireland. So of course, um, its single transferable vote is the electoral system used in Northern Ireland. Very similar, of course, um, in many ways to the system used in the Republic of Ireland. Um, very familiar to Irish listeners. And Alliance is the party that benefits most. It is often a party that, in its last election, gained a lot of seats through transfers. And actually, in contrast, um, the traditional unionist voice, uh, the TV led by Jim Allister, got around 65,000 votes and only got one um, seat in Jim Allister, the party leader. And that's, a, I think, the perfect example of the fact that you can get loads of votes, but if you're not transfer friendly, you will actually come away with very few elected representatives. Alliance was able to capitalise on, I suppose, perhaps a disaffection, perhaps a sense that they, people are willing, now more willing, to give Alliance a vote. And I think that's really what happened in, in North Belfast, where Nicola Mallon, the infrastructure minister, the deputy leader of the SDLP, lost her seat because people transferred or indeed gave Alliance their first preference. Um, so it goes to show that I suppose Alliance was taking votes off perhaps the more moderate parties, but also benefiting benefiting from transfers. And is there evidence of traditional unionist voters favouring nationalist parties or vice versa in this election? There's not so much evidence. Now, I think in any... PRSTV election, you will see some fascinating examples of transfers, you know, moving from one side of the nationalist unionist divide to another. So, for instance, in some in one constituency in Foyle, um, the DUP representative was helped over the line by Aintu um, voters 
choosing the DUP, presumably because of um, its pro-life stance. But in more, in more generally, it's, it's hard to say. Um, in the last um, assembly election, um, the UP was encouraging voters to give a, give a second preference or transfers to the SDLP. Um, I don't know if we saw that in such a obvious way this time around. But of course, there always are transfers, but it, it's hard to say whether those divisions have completely broken down. It'll take maybe a few more weeks of studying the transfers to work that one out. So what about the other parties then? I mean, you mentioned the SDLP already didn't do so well. Why was that? It's, it's quite complicated in some respects. Now, even on the Friday morning, early afternoon, um, I spoke to Colm Eastwood in the Maharafelt um, Count Centre, and he was there, you know, watching the results come in, especially in Foyle, where the party ha- hoped to get three um, seats and take one from Sinn Féin. But it really did just collapse. Now, Colm Eastwood and other representatives from um, the STLP said, oh, well, voters were lending their vote to Sinn Féin. They would say that the interest in the possibility of a Sinn Féin nationalist first minister led SDLP voters to say, okay, I will actually vote for Sinn Féin to, you know, show unionists, to show the DUP that they cannot block um, a nationalist first minister. Now, that theory doesn't really hold up in a STV electoral system in the sense that if, if SDLP voters were lending their votes, they really could have just given um, Sinn Féin a second preference on the ballot. So, but there probably is a sense um, that people did were perhaps attracted to Sinn Féin because of those reasons. Lending the vote probably isn't the best terminology. But then again, the party was also squeezed by alliance. And voters seemed to have opted for alliance in a number of other constituencies, again, as I mentioned, in North Belfast, um, for example. So in some ways, SDLP appears to have been squeezed on both sides. Colin Eastwood has said, you know, he will not resign. He's going to stay on as leader of the SDLP, but of course there will be um, significant soul searching in the weeks ahead for the party, which now of course will not have any ministers in the executive. It did so badly under the Dahant system, which is used to divvy out, um, as it were, portfolios to ministers in the North Ireland executive. The SDLP will not, did not even get enough votes or seats to be part of that process. So it's going to emerge with no ministers, a much smaller, much more diminished team of MLAs. And there are a lot of questions about where it goes from here. There are constituencies where it was expected to be very competitive, to do quite well. Um, In West Belfast, it had a fantastic candidate, for instance, who was tipped to really challenge um, Sinn Féin and challenge for a seat, but they didn't show up at all. And that was the story across a number of constituencies. So again, the question is, what happens to the SDLP next? And we've been hearing a lot in recent days about the Northern Ireland Protocol, and we'll get into that in a bit, uh, those post-Brexit checks on goods. But which policies were the real battlegrounds in this election, do you think? It depends who you ask. Um, If you'd asked Geoffrey Donaldson, the leader of the DUP, he would have said the protocol, the Northern Ireland protocol, those post-Brexit checks between Great Britain and Northern Ireland were the dominant issue. And it is true that the chaotic nature of politics in Northern Ireland, Northern Ireland at the moment is caused by these divisions over the Northern Ireland protocol. But then if you asked really any other party, including 
I think the Ulster Unionist Party, they would have said, you know, no, the reality is that voters were concerned about those classic bread and butter issues, such as the cost of living crisis and, of course, how to fix Northern Ireland's ailing um, health system, which is beset by really, really long waiting lists and is urgent is an urgent need of reform, of course. So there is a sense that while the protocol overshadowed things, people were voting basically to hopefully improve their lot at a time when I think everyone's income has been squeezed. What I didn't mention there, of course, and which was, and many people noted this, was conspicuous by its absence, was discussions over a border poll, um, a United Ireland, the constitutional future of Northern Ireland. And Sinn Féin did downplay those discussions going into the election. They said, look, you know, they admitted, and of course they would, that they would always be in favour of United Ireland. But they said, this is not what the election is about. The election is about trying to protect households from the squeeze on their incomes. And so the election, I think, was really was focused on the challenges I think voters across the island are facing. And the protocol was there in the ether. But I, I think perhaps fewer voters um, went to the polls with the protocol on their minds. And of course, if you were a TV voter or a GP voter, would it be in a concern or an Ulster Unionist Party voter? But again, I think this was an election that was fought on those kind of issues of governance and cost of living um, and really voters' pockets. And you mentioned that the border poll concept was you know, really downplayed in the campaign. But what has Sinn Féin said about its plans for a border poll? And how would the unionist parties likely rea- react, especially now considering what the election result was? So there was significant, I suppose, international interest in the election because of this idea that Sinn Féin would take this first minister role. And in the same way, I suppose, we saw the rise of the SNP in Scotland, the rise of Sinn Féin in Northern Ireland would seem to um, prefigure growing debates and growing discussions over um, the constitutional future. And of course, if you are um, in Great Britain, the future of um, the union itself. And this was this was mentioned by um, successful DUP candidates. They talked about unionism needing to unite going forward to protect the union. But Sinn Féin hasn't really said anything particularly new despite lots of the commentary that would suggest otherwise. You know, Sinn Féin did not come out and say we want a border poll um, tomorrow. In, in some ways, Sinn Féin is, will always want a border poll as quickly as possible. Um, that is its, 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 its um, raison d'etre. But it, it, and they have said this will you know, hopefully increase discussions and debate about United Ireland. But I think it was actually nearly... Um, other people nearly did the talking for them. And of course, it will encourage discussion and encourage interest around the world. But I don't think Sinn Féin's rhetoric has actually noticeably changed in any significant way. And it was interesting that um, the Taoiseach Michael Martin was on um, Morning Ireland the day or two after the election. And he, I think he said it was, um, nearly, I think nonsense might have been the word he used to suggest that a border poll was a key part of um, the election or was an important message coming from the election. And it's interesting that I think a lot of politicians in the Republic of Ireland have distanced themselves from that link between Irish unity and Sinn Féin success. So it it, it, it depends who you ask, I suppose. Um, But I don't think Sinn Féin's rhetoric has particularly changed, even if, I suppose, the symbolism of a Sinn Féin first minister in Northern Ireland might perhaps do the talking for them. 
And we have, of course, been hearing a lot of discussion around this, as you mentioned, both from politicians in Dublin and also those in Westminster. What has the reaction been in general? Again, I think some of the reaction has actually been overtaken now by the crucial question of, well, will Michelle O'Neill ever actually be First Minister? Because, of course, we still don't really know whether we will have a functioning executive anytime soon. The Assembly is scheduled to meet on Friday. It is meant as the first order of business to elect a speaker. We still don't know whether the DUP will take part in that process. There is 24 weeks then for um, parties to negotiate, to discuss, to try to come to some kind of arrangement to get the Stormont institutions up and running again. And in the background, of course, we have these ongoing negotiations, or perhaps not, between the UK and the EU over the Northern Ireland Protocol. And again, in recent days, um, the UK has put out a number of briefings suggesting that it will take unilateral action against um, the Northern Ireland Protocol and override it perhaps with legislation. That has caused alarm and fear in capitals across the EU, not just in Dublin. So in one sense, I think the significance of the election is not just in the Sinn Féin victory, but it is, of course, in the fact that the DP position has not changed and it has said it will not change until the Northern Ireland Protocol issue is solved. And we still don't really know what it means by solved or what the DUP would take as being solved. So I think, the, as is often the case, I think, in Northern Ireland politics, the pace has moved on so quickly that perhaps the significance of the election and the significance, of course, as we mentioned earlier, of the alliance surge is being lost in what is not just a wrangle of politics in Northern Ireland or discussions between you know, London and Dublin and Belfast, but actually involves capitals right across the EU. So this election has significance, dare I say it, for the entirety of the EU. And you gave us a, a bit of a taste there of how the process works, but if people aren't fully tuned into how Stormont works, they might be asking why it seems to be so hard to form a government and then actually keep it going in the North. So can you just talk us through how exactly power sharing works? Yes, so the power sharing arrangements that we have in place, which are meant to be in place today, date back to the Good Friday Agreement. They created these institutions and they have been tweaked and changed slightly over the years with a series of um, different agreements, but they do remain essentially the same. It's consociational, it's parish sharing, whatever you want to call it, but it's basically set up to encourage and I suppose mandate cross-community governance in Northern Ireland so that all communities are represented and to ensure that there is no dominance from any any party. Traditionally, that, of course, would have been unionist dominance to ensure that nationalists were represented in government. And the fact that it is hard to form a government is perhaps down to the mandatory nature of power sharing. Um, and it does mean that you have Sinn Féin um, working with the DUP. And of course, it doesn't take um, a genius to work out that these those two parties have very, very different views, um, not just on the constitutional question, but actually on the day-to-day issues of politics in many, many cases. So it often makes it quite difficult, quite clunky, um, when you have different ministers from different parties try to function effectively as a government. Now, of course, coalitions are not unique. Um, there's, of course, a, a 
the coalition going through its own travails um, in Dublin as we speak. But I think it's the mandatory nature that often makes it a little bit difficult. And I have been calls over the years to perhaps change that, to reform it, questions over whether we still need that kind of mandatory coalition. But there doesn't seem too much energy to actually change it, perhaps anytime soon. And of course, we are only, what, two years into actually having government again in Northern Ireland. Um, Stormont was mothballed for three years from 2017 to early 2020. Then it was hit by the pandemic. And then, of course, the DUP pulled out of the executive again earlier this year. So it's been a chaotic time. But I suppose part of the disruption, some would say, is not the nature of power sharing, but actually what has happened in the world in recent years. And of course, Brexit is something that really shook up Northern Ireland with Northern Ireland and the border dominating proceedings, which of course did cause, I suppose, a certain amount of instability in the politics in the region. So I suppose there's a few contributory factors to why Northern Ireland politics is so chaotic at the moment. And as part of that power sharing system, there's a first minister and there's a deputy first minister. They are equal positions, but is that really how it works in practice? And I'm wondering as well how the parties view it. Do they view them as equal positions? Yeah, it's a really good question. So for all intents and purposes, and Colin Eastwood actually made this point repeatedly during the campaign, there is no difference between the first minister and the deputy first minister. They're, they are equal um, in terms of standing. One can't do anything without the other. You'll remember, of course, that um, the Stormont executive collapsed in 2017 because Martin McGuinness resigned. And that then meant that um, Arlene Foster um, had to resign. So again, they, one cannot do anything without the other. They are joined at the hip, um, for want of a better phrase. But there is, of course, no doubt that in, in simple um, use of language, first minister does mean perhaps something more. And they are effectively the leader um, of Northern Ireland. So in one sense, practically, no, there is absolutely no difference. But I think everyone would accept there is a certain symbolism in being the first minister in Northern Ireland. So the, the big discussion piece now post-election is the Northern Ireland Protocol. And this isn't a new issue for the DUP or for any of the governments and the leaders involved. It's years now we've been talking about this and from their point of view, it's still not resolved. So it doesn't seem likely it can be resolved quickly. If the DUP won't take their seats, what happens then? So it really, it really is, everything is uncertain at the minute because the DUP has said it will not enter the executive until the Northern Ireland protocol is solved. And there is varying debates about whether these UK threats to, you know, trigger Article 16, to act unilaterally with legislation to override parts of the protocol, whether this is just bluffing, whether it's trying to scare the EU, whether the UK is going to pull out of negotiations whatsoever. So it's really hard to know what is going to happen next. And even um, on Wednesday, you know, the Sinn Féin were basically accusing the British government of pandering to the DUP and making these these threats to the EU that it will just walk away from negotiations. And Geoffrey Donaldson is in a bit of a bind himself. He had to decide whether he would leave his seat because he is a, currently an MP in the House of Commons and whether he will go and take his seat as an MLA in Stormont. Now, he said this week that actually he has unfinished business 
in the House of Commons and he will stay there until the protocol is solved. So it does not look like Jeffrey Donaldson will be in Stormont anytime soon. That probably does not bode well if we are trying to say when and whether the DUP will join the executive. Now, Gary Middleton, the very, very last MLA to be elected in FOIL, did say this week that if the protocol issue is solved, the DUP will enter the power sharing executive because there, of course, were questions about whether the DUP's refusal to enter the executive was motivated not perhaps just by the protocol, but by the idea that Jeffrey Donaldson would be the deputy first minister to Michelle O'Neill's first minister. And I think as soon as any um, DUP candidate was elected in the count centres, the first question the journalists were asking them, and I was among them, was, you know, you are a democratic party, it's in your title, um, and yet you're not comfortable going into government with Sinn Féin if you don't win the election. And they denied this. They said, and Jeffrey Donaldson has said this repeatedly in recent days, that he has his own mandate, that he has a mandate from unionist voters not to go into the executive if the protocol is not solved. He would say that, you know, he's not going to U-turn, he's not going to let down voters. So there's lots of different discussions and people are, I think, using various different figures that emerge, statistics from the election to sort of argue their case. I mean, Leo Varadkar was saying that actually there's a majority in favour of the protocol in the assembly right now. So that would mean that Stormy can get up and running because that's what voters want. The DUP would obviously interpret it very differently. So we're kind of in a sort of um, a semantic argument about when and whether and what is solved and what needs to be solved and what did voters actually vote for. Um, but at the end of the day, we really do not know, even as I say, whether the DUP will vote for a speaker to get the assembly properly up and running. So at least the assembly can sit, even if the executive is not working. So, I mean, it's been a few days since the election now. Stormont will sit on Friday and we still don't really know what's going to happen in two days' time let alone in perhaps 24 weeks. Now, this was obviously a historic result, but will it mean we see a new era of Northern Irish politics or will it just be more of the same? Again, I think a lot of people are debating this and it is it is hard to know. I think once the dust settles and if there was a functioning executive, it would be easier to answer this question because, again, I think so much of the oxygen has been taken up about whether there actually will be a government in Northern Ireland and whether there will be some kind of agreement or um, the opposite between the UK and the EU. But I think if we do get the institutions up and running, I think the fact that the Alliance Party will have a really good share of the ministerial portfolios, that the fact that the power balance that was in place before, where it was really Sinn Féin and the DUP largely having the run of things in Stormont, will be changed because the Alliance Party is now the third force in politics in Northern Ireland. So it will be, I think people are throwing around the the idea of a three-party state. So that will be very interesting, I think, to see. But also, of course, we can't ignore the fact that while the SDLP had a bad election and they would rather be in in government, in power sharing, in the executive, they actually now will be in opposition and they will be a probably quite significant like vocal opposition. Um, So that should also be very interesting. So in terms of the actual politics, I think we are going to see a new era if we get the institutions up and running again. But I do think the results speak for themselves um, in terms of the broader population of Northern Ireland. I think the fact that Alliance is doing so well does go to show perhaps that people people do just want effective day-to-day governance. They want those issues like cost of living sorted. They do 
want the health service reformed. But it, it's hard to know. I think I think anyone who kind of looks into a crystal ball doesn't get much back when it comes to you know Northern Ireland politics at the moment, purely because everything is just so uncertain. And every party will have a different interpretation of what voters wanted. And of course, at the end of the day, who knows really um, what's going to happen or what voters actually wanted when they went down from you know one to 16 on their ballot paper. Well, that's it, isn't it? The election might be over, but there's still so much we don't know. So thanks, Dominic, for giving us an insight into what we should be looking out for in the days and the weeks ahead. Thank you. Thanks to everyone who listened to this episode of The Explainer. And thanks again to Dominic for joining me. This episode was brought to you by producers Aoife Barry and Nikki Ryan. If you liked what you heard and you want to support The Explainer, there are a few things you can do. You can head to thejournal.ie forward slash contribute to become a monthly subscriber. Or you can leave us a rating and a review as well if you're feeling generous wherever you listen to your podcasts. Thanks again for listening. Until next time.